Um, we're in, I guess, week four, technically, of a series, Rubble to Return, as we walk through these books of Ezra and Nehemiah that were really, really originally one book that tells this story of Israel and their return. And so, um, week one, we talked about this pattern that happens in these three different sections of a king decree, a leader is raised up, they find opposition, and then there's this kind of anticlimactic moment. So Ezra 1 through 6, Cyrus issues this decree, Zerubbabel is this new leader, um, they won't let anyone else help them, and so the temple um, construction is kind of stalled and is not really completed, and then when it is, everyone's like, wait, this is not what we expected, we were wanting something different, and so that was kind of the first section. Then 7 through 10 is another section. It was everyone's favorite section in the whole Bible, right? Okay? So you have Artaxerxes, and then Ezra is this leader who is raised up, and they have a problem that everyone's intermarried, and so the solution is, all right, everyone get divorced. And then the book ends. And, and someone was, I, I just heard this through the grapevine, someone was saying, why did Gary leave us hanging? Um, that was a decision from... Um, corporate. I had nothing to do with that decision. Um, that's just how it ends. It ends with this mass divorce, maybe. It doesn't even really say, did everyone do this or not? Um, so, and then Nehemiah 1 through 7 that we're going to talk about today, I'm just going to kind of give you a little breakdown of what happens really quickly. Um, Artaxerxes is the king still. Nehemiah is this leader that's going to be raised up. Um, they have these neighbors who aren't real happy about this building project that they're in. Um, and then we're going to find out that maybe the people aren't as committed as we thought they were in the first place. So this leader that's raised up by God is a guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is one of these books where we look at and say, man, Nehemiah is this great, great leader. And typically we'll talk about this book when we're kind of starting a building campaign because Nehemiah, man, he had it all together. So we're going to kind of look at Nehemiah over the next couple of weeks um, just see how together he really was with it. So Nehemiah in Hebrew is Nahim Yah, and Yah is an abbreviation for Yahweh. Nahim is the word, the Hebrew word for comfort. So um, Isaiah 40, we just looked at a few minutes ago. Nahim, Nahim, my people, says your God. And so that's that word that comes out. God is comfort. It's what his name means. God is comfort. Nahim Yah. And so we're going to kind of look, and I'm going to read a little bit more um, than I typically do instead of just telling the story, because I want you to kind of get a picture of what's happening, what the author is really doing with this. So Nehemiah 1, starting in verse 2, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah gets this news that Jerusalem is in rubble that it's still a big problem, even though there's this remnant that's been going back. There are still these, these people, and they're searching for this um, rebuilding and renewing themselves as the people of God. 
And so that's what they're longing for. And Nehemiah hears, hey, that people have returned, and there are some people who are still there, but their life is not good. They're, they're in disgrace. They're not happy. This is not the way God imagined this or they, not the way they imagined this return would look. And so Nehemiah's response is to mourn and weep and pray for Jerusalem and for the people of God. So, um, verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who have loved him and keep his commandments... Let your ears be attentive and your eyes be opened to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people, people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your people, they are your servants, your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Let your ear be attentive to the people of this your servant and to the prayer your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And there's this, like, okay, wait, wait, who is this man? And then Nehemiah's like, whoa, wait, 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 I forgot to tell you, um, I'm the cupbearer to the king. Like, that's my job. And so this man is the king of Persia, okay? It's Artaxerxes. And he's a very powerful person. So just a question real quick, because remember what led them into exile in the first place was not everything happening externally. It was what was happening within their heart. And so Ezekiel and Jeremiah come along and say, hey, if this doesn't change, if this isn't different, then the rest of this stuff doesn't matter. And the rest of the time, you're going to continue to find yourselves hurting and lost and searching and begging for me to come and save you. If the heart doesn't change, you're still going to have a problem. And, and so that's what, you, you look at Nehemiah and you ask that question, how's his heart? Like, I mean, it seems really good, right? I mean, he hears news and he's weeping and mourning and praying. And then he offers this prayer and he says, Hey, God, I want you to remember what you told us. You said if we didn't obey that you were going to let us be scattered. But if we will return to you, no matter how far you have gone, I will welcome you and embrace you as you come home. And so these people have been scattered throughout the world and scattered into Babylon and what's now Persia, and they're waiting. And you see in Nehemiah this incredible heart of repentance. 
Like, God, I'm, I'm sorry, not just for my sins, but the sins of my father, the sins of my people. Nehemiah, it just seems like, has this heart that Jeremiah and Ezekiel have been talking about. Right? This is what the people need for restoration. This needs to happen first. So chapter 2. In the month of Nicaea, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was brought from him, um, brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid because I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. And then he asked him for some letters to help him and give him safety. He asked him for some resources. And, and the king basically grants him all these requests. So I want, I want you to think just for a moment, is this what divine providence looks like? Because I want you to think about this story for just a second. Step back from it for just a second. There are thousands of people who have been exiled and have left Jerusalem. They're all over now what is Persia. And it just so happens that this one exile still has a connection to Jerusalem and just so happens that he travels and he tells him. And when he does hear this news, he is incredibly sad because of it and he mourns and he weeps over it. And then it just so happens that this one person is actually a cupbearer for the king and has an audience with him on a regular basis. And for some reason, on this particular day, the king notices that he's having a bad day, that things don't look good. And he actually asks him, what's wrong? He cares enough about this servant to ask him what's wrong. And he has the audacity to ask the king to help him rebuild a nation, a city. And somehow, the king actually says, yes. And not only am I going to answer your request with yes, I'm also going to send soldiers with you on your journey, and I'm going to give you the company credit card. We're, we're going to take care of you and your expenses. And so you hear that story. 
And I wonder, is the very first thing that comes to your mind like, wow, Nehemiah is such an amazing leader to think of that plan. I mean, it's, it is beyond me what a great, great leader and mind he has to think of this. Or is your response, it seems like Nehemiah has some help. It seems like there is something else going on within this story. So for me, there was been several of these kind of divine providence moments. One of the, the most special occurred actually about 10 years ago. Um, I had just lost, um, or not lost, I didn't, wasn't chosen for a job that I thought I really, really wanted. And um, a few Days, I guess, after um, this guy named Jared Schultz calls me and says, Hey, um, we want you to look at Tyler, Texas, and Shiloh Road. And I thought, I don't know where Tyler is, really. Never, never been there. Um, I guess I had for baseball a couple times, um, but I didn't know anything about it. And so this process goes, and I'm kind of dejected um, because I didn't get a job. and Jared calls back a few weeks later and goes, hey, you're still in this process. Would you like to come interview? And so I, I decided that we're going to do that. And I had gone to a conference the week before I was coming here to interview. And I was talking. Um, I ran into a friend of mine named Doug Page. He's actually the Litton's son-in-law. Um, ran into him at a conference. And so we were talking, and he goes, hey, what's going on with, with you? And I said, hey, well, um, I'm kind of looking at a transition out of youth ministry and going into preaching. And um, he asked how it was going. I said, well, I'm really going forward with this church in Tyler, Texas. And he said, Tyler, really? What church? And I said, well, Shiloh wrote. He goes, my father-in-law is one of the elders there. And right behind me is another one of their elders named Mike Warner. And just by circumstance, Mike was at this conference that I was at. And so we started talking a little bit. He goes, well, this is, this is kind of like divine providence. I'm, I'm going to be out of town next week when you come interview. And so we sat down um, outside. We didn't go into that session. Um, we sat in the, the foyer of this church and talked for about an hour and a half. And I, I finished that conversation, I called my wife, and I just said, hey, you'll never believe what just happened. And it was like everything just kind of started falling in order. It, it, was, it was like God was saying, hey, just so you know, I've got this. And you might have been really dejected by where you didn't get a job, but I want you to know I have something for you, and this is where I want you to be. And the thing is, is I have felt that almost every day since. Like, this is where God wants me, and I'm doing what He wants me to do. And, and I just wonder, isn't it amazing 
how God can use, orchestrate, align people, places, resources to bring Nahim to His people. He's going to use a leader who has been exiled to bring Nahim comfort to his people. Like, is this this divine providence? Is this God at work? But here's here's the bigger question. Just because everything lines up, just because everything runs smoothly, does that mean that's God's plan? Does that mean it's God's will? Well, everything, the doors are just opening. And we talk about it like this, right? The doors are just opening, and everything's falling into place. Man, this is God's will. And my question is, what if it's not? Because what Nehemiah has decided to do is come back to this city and build walls. And the prophet Zechariah talks about this city of God, and he talks about it as a city without walls. He talks about it as a city where all these nations are coming together under the rule and the reign of the Lord God. And so there's the question, like, okay, if everything is just falling in place, is that God's will? And I think when it's going well and things are moving smoothly, it's kind of easy to say that. But the big question is about what, what about when they aren't going well? What, what about when things aren't falling into place? Is God in that? Is He in those moments? And so we're kind of looking now, right, because of the pattern. We, we had this leader that's been raised up. Now we're kind of looking at opposition, And so here in chapter 2, you find the first of seven reports of opposition. They're facing this opposition. So verse 10, when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And so then there's these seven different times where these men come and bring opposition, all right? It it basically is like, we're going to make your life miserable, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah faces it head on. He's like, hey, we're going to grab a hammer, and we're going to grab a sword, and we're going to stand there, and we're going to build this wall. We're going to make sure it happens. And so he, he, as a good leader, I think, faces that head on and goes on, and this project is really completed. But again, it brings up that question, because now Nehemiah is bumping into opposition. Things aren't falling into place as easy. Is it still God's will? Is this what God wants from us? Just because things aren't flowing smoothly and the doors aren't opening, Is this what God wants us to do? Is this what the next step looks like? And and my thought was there's several different ways that we discern. One is through prayer, which Nehemiah clearly does a lot. 
is we pray and we ask God, almost like Gideon, to show me this fleece. God, where, where is this next step? Where are you leading me? What are you guiding me to? Second is the Word. Right? We, we have this counsel that we have that is something that's tangible, that we can hold on to, that we can see. Right? King David's running from Saul, and he finds him hiding in a cave, and he has this chance to kill Saul and basically become king. And David says, no, 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 I cannot do that. Right? And his men are sitting there like, this is the day that, that God promised where he would deliver your enemy. This is your opportunity. Kill him, then you're king. And David says, no, I, I can't do that. That goes against God's word. And then the third way I think we discern is through community. Having other people that we walk with in faith that can give us counsel, that we can talk with, that have some wisdom, who have the ability to step back and see things differently than we do in our own life. And I think those are the three things that are so, so important when we talk about God's will. But more importantly, when you think about the will of God, think about presence over place. Because so many times our question is, God, is this where you want me? Is this where you're leading me? But I think the bigger question is, what does God's present in, presence in your life look like? How is it flowing out? Because whether you're in a foreign land or the promised land, God's will does not change. You are called to live as the people of God. And so you go on, and Nehemiah, they finish the wall. They give this report of the exiles. And you think, man, this is, this is what we've been looking for, right? The city is being rebuilt and restored, and the people are coming back. And you kind of do this check of, like, how's Nehemiah's heart? It's, it's amazing. right? He's a leader. He's trusting God. Everything is going like it should But Nehemiah kind of throws a curve in here. Because you have chapters 1 through 4, and then really 6 and 7, that are this cohesive story. And then chapter 5 is just kind of lobbed in here like a little bomb. Like you, you read it, and it's like, wait, this, this doesn't really fit with the story. This, this looks a little bit different. right? Because there's supposed to be this kind of anticlimactic ending. And, and so they get here, they're facing this opposition, and they go on and they rebuild the wall, and everything looks like it's going good. Nehemiah's heart's amazing, but then the question of, what about the people's heart? How is the heart of the people? Is it like Nehemiah's? And so chapter 5, verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we, our sons and daughters, are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our field and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, 
And though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So he, he gives this kind of disclaimer, and you're thinking, okay, what's going on? And so then Nehemiah comes back and he says something. You are charging your own people entry. He gets so mad at them. And he says, you're charging your own people interest. And your own people are complaining, you know, we were exiles and we were slaves, but now we're back home in our land and we're still slaves. And you think, well, okay, what's the big deal? Three different times in the Torah, God commands His people that they are not going to charge interest to other Jews. Three separate times it mentions this command that you will not do it. And if you'll remember back a couple of weeks ago, there was this moment for them of, all right, this time we're really going to do it. This time we're going to be obedient and we're going to follow the law. Let's go. Everyone get divorced. But they had this moment where you start to say, wait, maybe things really are changing. Maybe there is resolution coming. Maybe there is um, this redemption happening. Maybe the people really are turning back to God. And then you find chapter 5 and it's like, wait, 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 wait. Are they really living faithfully to the Torah? As they claim they were going to do this time, because this time we're serious about it. Or, is it like all the other times before? And I think so many times we have this kind of if-then mentality. Right? I, I used to tell God, God, if you will help me make it to the major leagues, that, that was my goal. If you help me make it, I promise I will use that platform for your good. But here's the problem. God never asks you to be faithful to him on a conditional basis. regardless of where you are, that you would live your life sold out and committed to Him. Right? Because if you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you. But if you are faithful, I will bring you back from the farthest horizon you can imagine. Right? The psalmist, God remembers your sins no more as far as the east is from the west. I'm going to bring you back from the farthest horizon. And our if in our mind is this external condition. If God will do this, then I will. God, if you will bring us back to Jerusalem. God, if you will restore the temple. God, if you will bring the Torah back into our life. God, if you will rebuild the walls. God, if you will restore us to a place of prominence, then we will be faithful. And I think what God was looking for 
And what Ezekiel, what Jeremiah were really talking about was, God, I am going to be faithful. And if you do this, I will continue to be faithful. But if you do not, I will continue to follow. And I want to kind of end right here with a big question. What if if never comes? What if if never comes? What if if doesn't look like you imagined? Is the then on hold? What if the temple is never the same? What if the wall isn't fully restored? What if your marriage remains broken? What if your dreams and your hopes for your future continue to be far too elusive? What if you continue to struggle with the addiction? What if you never get the job? What if you never take that step of faith? What if you never get out of debt? I think it brings us back to the question that really was the question for the Jewish people coming back is regardless of what happens, will you be faithful and follow me? Is having me enough? Is you being in my presence all that you need? Because so many times as churches, I think we're we're so guilty. Well, we need this, and if we had this... and. This place is a great tool. But if tomorrow it was gone, would we still be faithful and be the people that God has called us to be in Tyler, Texas? If tomorrow you wake up and your life has changed, is He enough for you? Is He the thing that matters more than anything else? Is He the one you are pursuing and giving your heart to? Father, thank You for this day. God, we're grateful to be together. And Father, um, we see so much of ourselves in this story. This really story within a story. Because it's not just simply about walls being rebuilt and people being unfaithful. Father, it's really a story about us. It's our life. And Father, our commitment that no matter how hard we try and how many times we say this time is going to be different, we still find ourselves falling short of Your glory. And Father, regardless of how far we have gone to the furthest horizon, You welcome us home. And Father, we thank You and are so grateful. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.